0: After all, there is nothing real outside our perception of reality, is there? But compliqué, tu parles, tu me poses pas de questions.
1: If you wish to avoid prosecution, I would advise that you comply with our language laws. This is the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to the RCMP. That's the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. I'm your host today, Becky Shrimpton, and first up in our special series showcasing 2019's Hot Docs filmmakers, I'm talking to Ingrid Veninger about her documentary, The World or Nothing, which is going to be premiering at Hot Docs this April 27th at 8.45pm at the TIFF Bell Lightbox right here in Toronto. For more screening times, as well as more info, make sure to check out the Hot Docs website. If you're not in Toronto, it's totally cool. You can follow the progress of the film at the Punk Films website. And the link for both that and the Hot Docs website are going to be posted in the show notes. The World or Nothing explores the story of these two Cuban twin brothers who are living in Barcelona. And they're trying to become dancing and singing sensations using social media. It's a really remarkable portrait of brotherly love, the quest for celebrity, and the challenges that immigrants face when leaving their homes and families as well as the sacrifices that you have to make to achieve your dreams. It's chock full of love, dance, great music, and fascinating thoughts about social media and how we connect with the world. Ingrid Veninger is a producer, actor, and documentarian who has an eclectic career. Everything she makes is bold, visually intriguing, and bright. I really recommend her feature film, not a documentary, a Porcupine Lake. It's really remarkable and totally worth your time. Here's my chat with Ingrid Veninger. How did you first get to know about Hot Dogs? What was your first sort of interaction with it?
0: Well, for about 10 years, I worked, or even longer, with uh, filmmaker Peter Mettler. And we screened um, a film, maybe in the early 90s, called Picture of Light. Mm. And uh, it won three awards. And then I worked with Peter again on Gambling Gods and LSD. And uh, he's a, you know, very poetic, essay-style, documentary, filmmaker, cinematographer. So I, you know, I kind of got exposed to hot dogs through Mettler.
1: And what is it that you love about documentary? I know you do uh, some producing of, um, of fiction films as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is my seventh feature film as a director and it's my very very first documentary um I you know I love working with actors and I've written all my scripts and I I love creating worlds and uh you know contriving circumstances and I and I and and I I love fiction honestly but I I'm a huge fan of documentary. In fact, filmmakers that do both, like um, the late, great Agnes Varda. Mm. And uh, I would say a lot of my fictions are rooted in a tradition of a kind of cinema verite documentary, very realist a uh, small crew, very naturalistic acting, naturalistic dialogue. But this documentary stemmed from doing my master's degree in cinema at York University, which I'm completing now. I defend at the end of this month in April and, uh, and I had to try something completely different, something I'd never done before. So I plunged into documentary working entirely without a script or a plan Or outline or treatment for the very first time.
1: And so, what made you want to focus in on these two brothers?
0: Yeah, these two brothers are um, incredible humans, uh, dancers that I saw when I was on vacation in Cuba over New Year's Eve in 2015. I saw them perform and uh, they kind of wiped everybody else off the stage. And I, I've always had an affinity for dancers. I spent the first half of my life uh, training as a dancer. I thought that was going to be my career forever. And um, I really wanted to approach them, but I was too chicken to do it that night. I mean, maybe it was was also New Year's Eve. Um, I was there with my partner. I was getting ready to shoot my feature film, uh, Porcupine Lake in 2016. And... um, I, I didn't speak to them or approach them that night at all. But over the course of the next two years, I just they kept coming up. I kept being curious about them, and I decided to go back to Cuba to the same place um, for New Year's Eve in 2017, hoping that I would see them and kind of mustering the courage to approach them. I mean, I was just I just wanted to be friends with them essentially, and um, they weren't there. They weren't at that resort and. After asking a whole chain of people, I made contact with them and traveled by car for 12 hours from one end of Cuba to Havana to meet them for two hours on New Year's Eve 2017. And um, over the course of that two hours, uh, we just clicked. And one of them can speak, Rubildo can speak a little bit of English, so he and I were doing most of the talking, but Rupert can understand, although he doesn't speak that that much. Um, and so kind of through barely understanding each other, we we linked and I asked if they would be willing to do a documentary film with me, and they agreed, and so we shot it in two thousand and eighteen.
1: And there's something so remarkable about these men in the fact that they are from Cuba, which is not known for being um, as advanced as perhaps other countries, especially when it comes to the Internet and openness in social media. And yet they just have this awareness of the hustle of social media and how to get out there and popular culture. Was that something that intrigued you?
0: We didn't really talk about that. No, I had no idea what what the film would be or where it would go or what they would be like on camera before we started shooting. And again, the film very much captures this very, very fresh time for them just arriving in Spain, being in Barcelona for two months. And as you said, in, in Cuba, I mean, there's there's no Wi-Fi there. The The bandwidth, even when you can get on the Internet, is very low and very slow. And cell phones are very expensive. In fact, they can cost up to a month's wage um, just for the most basic cell phone plan. So they just simply did not have the kind of access to the internet in Cuba that they they now do in, in Barcelona. And so the world kind of exploded for them. And they were so ready and so hungry and so equipped to represent themselves online they you know they have the ability to shoot their own videos make their own music do their own choreography dance it Um, and they're a team they're an incredible team Um, and the affection and the the intimacy they have with one another is I think really really profound
1: and something that's fascinating to me, I mean, you're an artist yourself, so you're familiar with how hard you have to hustle to do these things. What do you think you've captured in this movie about the art of the hustle?
0: I mean, they're incredibly hardworking. And as they say, that that's something they, they got from their parents. And I've met their parents. I returned to uh, Cuba this New Year's Eve, 2018, and... Um, to show the film, the finished film to their mom and dad in the small town where they live in the Guantanamo region. Um, The town is called Moa. So I returned to show it to them and watch them watch their sons in this film, which was uh, full circle and beautiful. Um, But I, you know, I I did not know um, how, what their personalities or characters really were, but they are so disciplined, so hardworking, so determined And, you know, that's hence the title, the world or nothing. I mean, they're going for the world and and nothing is not an option
1: when you first introduce us to them, um, we're seeing them in their day-to-day lives. We're seeing them as people. We're seeing them walking down the street and how people are reacting to them. They're talking about their family. Uh, you don't get to see their work right away and what it is they do. Was that intentional?
0: Yeah, I mean, again, we sort of started, the film starts with them waking up and because there was no plan, I really did not, I didn't structure this in my mind. The film is pretty much made in camera. We only took 33 days to edit it, so wow. unlike many dogs, documentaries that are unscripted, you know, the, the, the convention goes that you make it in the edit room and sometimes documentaries take years or months and months to edit because you're basically creating the form in post-production and gathering all the footage maybe over years in production. But for us, we had 11 days to shoot and I was just following these these days of, of their life at this particular time as it unfolded. And As you can see in the film, there's lots of shots that for me really are rooted in kind of the tradition of an observational style of documentary where there are not a lot of edits. There's not a lot of interference on the part of me or the filmmaking team in terms of contriving or manufacturing any kind of narrative. It just unfolds as it does so that you feel like you are there with these amazing brothers. You're just You're there in the moment with them, spending time with them, having access to their world because they're so open and available. And they show you what they do in their own time. You know, I'm not I'm not forcing anything onto the story.
1: And you talked about them being extremely open. There's these moments where you're asking them very intimate questions, and watching one of them respond while the other one watches them respond and reacts, and it's just as compelling to watch their brother react to what the other person is saying. Was there anything that they were not willing to go into, or was there a moment particular that stood out for you?
0: I mean, it's interesting in, in asking about the interviews. You know, Sanford Meisner, again, enacting. Teacher that founded the neighborhood playhouse in New York says an ounce of behavior is worth a pound of words, and I sort of felt that as I was watching them um, answer the questions and working off their expressions because I didn't know what they were saying. I don't. I don't speak Spanish, so I would ask the question in English. My cinematographer would translate. There was a crew of two, so sound was done by my husband. He doesn't speak Spanish, so he's the sound recordist, doesn't understand what they're saying. And the cinematographer from Barcelona could understand, but I don't know, you know, you're an interviewer. Imagine if everything I said, and I'm saying these long passages, then had to be translated to you by someone else, and then I'm just sitting there silently. It completely breaks the momentum up, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, right after the first answer, after the first translation, I said, forget about it. We're not translating. I'll just ask the question, and they'll answer, and I'll just work off their behavior. And I didn't have a list of questions, so I never knew what they were saying. So it was really a lot of times I was watching the person that wasn't speaking and looking at the responses and the reactions and the energy of the room and their expressions and their behavior, and then I would just ask the next question, and I wouldn't know what the answer was. I didn't know what the answer was until halfway through the shoot where – My DP, uh, Leon, and I took a day and he translated and I went, oh, wow, that's what they were saying.
1: So your interest sort of lies in the reaction, which allows us as the audience to uh, to get into it. Because I know a lot of people aren't uh, keen on the subtitles, and they're wrong. But I think there's so much value because uh, their language is not just Spanish, but their language is also dance, that you just watch how expressive they are, even with their bodies and with their faces, and it's a whole other form of communication.
0: Yes, exactly. And, and that really informed the movement of the camera and the camera in a sense became sort of a dancing partner with them when you see them moving around each other and moving inside their closets and spaces and trance, you know, the way they wake up and fold their blankets and, and get water and move to the laundry room and move through the town the way they walk in unison, the way they stop, the way they glance at each other. I mean, their movements are such an incredible part of the film and such a strong language unto, unto themselves. So yes, you can, you can in a sense watch the film without reading the subtitles, although there's, you know, content for the subtitles. Spanish-speaking people will just watch the film and hear their words directly. You can also watch the film and focus on everything outside the twins, because there's all kinds of other narratives happening around them. And, you know, our film is focusing on their story and the way they're moving through space and through time. But there's countless stories happening around them. So, That was also a a big consideration for us was the language of movement, of flow, of people, of trees, of kids, of soccer balls, of dogs, of birds, especially pairs of things. In their environment, sometimes in public, they're very, very, very small in the screen. That was really intentional. Um, and then in, in their private world, they're in the forefront, and in, you know, and they're they they're very present in the frame. And
1: it's also a very quiet film for two brothers who are very raucous and very party party like and very loud. And that intimacy really allows everything to sort of expand in that.
0: Yeah. I mean, it sort of plays with the notion of on camera, off camera in a way. The documentary is to both, is, is, you know, sort of exploring this authenticity of, of, like I said, being there and sort of having, not having this filter of fiction, which is a sort of script and this blueprint of something that's kind of anticipated and executed. Your documentary is in the moment. Um, and again, these moments can never be repeated, and if I was to make the film now, it would be a completely different movie than it was when we shot, Um, unlike fiction, you know, you can shoot this year, next year, and because you have the blueprint, you kind of, you know, it's not going to make that much of a difference, but the silence, and again, the atmosphere, when you're hearing the traffic, or you're hearing the birds, or you're hearing, all of that's very musical to me, so it plays with the kind of nature of performance of social media, the way that's curated, the way that's focused, the way that's like everyone's highlight reel as opposed to the real life being the behind the scenes. We played with that notion of, you know, the moments right before they make their live post, the moments right after, the moments when they're off in their private world doing their own thing, the moments when they're in the public and they always have that blue boombox playing music, you know, all these sort of being on and being off and what that is also in relation to fiction and nonfiction.
1: Well, there's also so many cameras in this film that aren't related to your camera. So not only are they shooting themselves in a the live camera, like the um, the nightclub that they're in, everybody is on camera. That's one of the features of it that there's big screens showing what everybody's doing in the in the nightclub. Like it seems like everybody is constantly on display and on show.
0: Yes, and and also when they're in in locations like the fountain where you see everyone's phones up or when they're just you know they're not they're never busking they're just sort of rehearsing their movements that they're going to be doing at the club or that they're going to be bringing into their dance classes so you see how people captured them when they're out in the world and then that's kind of a meta of our film capturing them and then other people inside our film capturing them and Where is all this going and what does it all mean, you know? Mm -hmm.
1: And there's some incredible moments of this emotional vulnerability on camera that, like, if you just put a camera on someone and started being like, tell me about your father. You know, I don't know if you'd get that kind of openness from just about anyone. But they must be so used to being on camera and being so vulnerable that that must be like nothing for them now.
0: Yeah. And I mean, in those moments, they are in a very vulnerable time when it's, you know, my parents came from former Czechoslovakia and had to leave all their family and everything familiar behind and start an entirely new life in Canada, not speaking the language. Now they're in Barcelona, they speak Spanish, but they've, they've, the move has come at a cost to them and they've had to leave their mother and their father behind who they are very, very, very close to. And that weighs on them, you know, like when he says in that, head shaving scene that if you know if they were going to die tomorrow they they wouldn't have left so at the same time they grateful for the new opportunities that being in Spain affords them at the same time there's a price to be paid for every anyone that makes a move like that and that can be very hard very very hard very very challenging and and thankfully they have each other to sort of empower one another and and, and um, strengthen one another. So when one of them's up and the other one's down, they can kind of balance each other out.
1: Now, you mentioned that you were able to show this film to their family. Uh, what was their reaction to it, if you don't mind my asking?
0: Yeah, it was they were so beautifully focused on watching the film. They were emotional watching, of course, because like we learn in the movie proper, their mom and dad, don't watch these videos that they make. So the world can see these live videos and these Instagram stories, but their parents don't have the access to. So first of all, the parents are watching these videos that their sons have made for the first time. Again, they've been performers and since they were five years old dancing on their washing machine. So they've always been making little home things all the time. But the kind of technology they're using now is at a different level. So their parents are watching their work, their songs, their their dancing, and also watching how they're living, that they're living with their family, where they're living, they're recognizing their family, they're seeing Barcelona, and they're very focused on watching the film. And at the end, the mother's first words were, It's so natural. Oh. It's natural, natural. It's them. And then Um, we had one of their friends translate. And I learned then the mother, you know, was talking through the friend to me saying that um, these are her boys. I mean, they love each other. They love each other so much. And the film is so real. It's so, so natural. They're not acting. That's how they are. That's how they really are. So when the mom can say it feels real and natural, uh, then, you know, as a filmmaker of a nonfiction, it's the most beautiful thing you can hear. What an incredible gift. Mm-hmm. And with that
1: gift, what are you, uh, what are you hoping people will take from this movie when they see it? I mean,
0: I just, I, now, I mean, I'm very close to the brothers. Uh, they were part of the process all the way through. I showed them the, the very first cut of the film. I just, um, messaged with them yesterday. They'll be, um, Skyping in for a Q and A. Uh, for the first and second screening at Hot Docs on April 27, twenty eighth, And I just love that people will have a chance to meet these two incredible souls. And um, hopefully they'll they will get the million um, friends they they hope to have on social media and that people will be exposed to their work and that more opportunities will will come for them. I just I just love these guys um, a lot. And so I'm It's a privilege to be friends with them, and it was uh, amazing to be given the permission to make this film. Excellent.
1: Uh, I just have two more questions for you. The next one is, uh, do you have another Canadian documentary you'd like to recommend to our listeners? It can be something that's playing at Hot Docs that's coming up, or it can just be something from your history.
0: Oh, wow. Well, I'm really excited for Rama Rao's The Daughter Tree that's premiering at Hot Docs. That's what I'd recommend for today. Also, I can't wait to see Ai Weiwei's new film, And uh, I don't think you can go wrong with any film at Hot Docs. And I think it's incredible that they have this access to students and seniors for every film that screens before five o'clock. It's free. So anybody um, that's in school or that's a senior should just mark out their calendars and just see everything that's playing during the days at Hot Docs.
1: Which leads really well into my next question. What do you think Canada needs more of to support its artists?
0: On the one hand, we have incredibly strong communities of filmmakers, you know, Deluxe post production has has helped me on every single film I've directed, which means they're finished to a sort of standard that makes them competitive with films around the world and they can screen at festivals everywhere. So we have incredible teams of people in post in production, our actors, our crews, Funding you know is always a challenge. It's just not enough money so many of us have to uh, support ourselves doing other kinds of things and and many times uh, pay to make our work and invest our own money into making films. but again it's a privilege to be making films. So it's not that I would make any complaints because I don't really believe in complaining or um, but I would just say that we are in a, a great, time to be film like independent filmmakers right now and with the technology that we have um, it's great to be seeing more diverse stories and more representation of, of different perspectives on our screens big and small so at this point if you have a story to tell you can be entirely and completely unstoppable and if your film doesn't get into uh, you know a festival, throw up a sheet and and show it to your neighbors and get it online and connect with people and build your own audience from the ground up. I just think it's it's an amazingly empowering time for everyone. um, And we need to take advantage of that. Thank you so much. Thank you.
1: Thanks for listening to the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. If you like what we're doing, please remember to rate us and subscribe on iTunes or on your favorite podcatcher. It helps people find our podcast and Canadian media they love. Come chat with us at RCM Pod on Facebook or on Twitter at RCM Pod. Our theme song is by Craig Stewart and our show art is by Paul Stachniak. Join us next week for another great film from the wilds of Canadian cinema.